This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for coming to the talk this morning. I, I'm going to take a quick peek at the gallery and just to see your faces. Hello. Thank you very much. So it's October, the middle of October, and it's turning into fall. We have uh, a practice period in the city. We have an intensive coming up here at uh, Green Gulch starting in November. And it always feels in the fall in this hemisphere, in the Northern hemisphere, that everything is uh, quieting down and uh, turning towards the dark of the year. It's right now today, it's a, a new moon, just a sliver of a moon, just, um, just the beginnings of the new moon. And we'll be having uh, daylight saving time. It will end and it's that time of year. There's also Halloween coming up. I don't know how it's going to be celebrated this year. And we also have the scary elections coming up pretty soon as well. So right around this time of year, we often have a ceremony. It doesn't have to be this time of year, but we often do called Sajiki. Sajiki means to uh, the SE part is make offerings or charitable deeds. And the Jiki is food. So it's, it's a, quite a, a wonderful large ceremony where we make offerings of food and also have a large memorial service to remember our uh, loved ones, teachers who have died. Uh, so the, the food offerings are made to one of the beings that are in, in the Buddhist teaching, in the realm, in a particular realm. And this teaching is about the six, the, uh, the Buddhist teaching of the six realms. Uh, and this realm is called the realm of the hungry ghosts, which I think partially we have it at um, Halloween time, kind of acknowledging the, the resonance with hungry ghosts and that time of year, but it's not necessary to have it be at that time. So uh, these realms, I want to talk today about realms. How can we understand one another in different realms? What is it to share a world but not share a realm? And can we really completely share our world with anyone else truly? So there's a, a koan that's, I, I think it's brought up quite frequently, you may know it, called Dizan planting. Uh, the fields, Dizan planting the fields. Now, 
Ditsan was a Chinese Zen master who lived in the 800s, 867 to 928. And he, he had another name, Ditsan is kind of a, uh, a further name. Uh, he was uh, Lo Han Gui Shen. Uh, Ditsan was named for the, his name for the mountain where he taught and Ditsan means earth store. And in Japanese, that's Jizo. Jizo Bodhisattva, uh, we have in the Green Gulch Zendo, a beautiful standing Jizo. Those of you who've been to the Zendo know that when we give our lectures, we're right there in front of Jizo, Ditsan, Earth Store Bodhisattva, an Earth Store Bodhisattva, originally the story is went down into the hell realms, into the hell realm to, to help her mother, Kashita Garba in Sanskrit, and then helped her mother with all her prayers and offerings and wishes, but then saw all the other people who were still in this terrible realm, this hell, hell realm, and made a vow. Uh, a strong vow to return over and over and over again to help beings who are suffering. So this is Jizo Bodhisattva. And Jizo uh, is sometimes called the Lord of the six realms. So the, 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 the Bodhisattva who's connected with these six realms of um, our existence, you might say. Uh, so I'll just name them just so you know, and you're probably familiar with this teaching. There's the human realm, the realm of the devas or kind of a paradise type of realm, the fighting or competitive um, ajuras or kind of super strong giants. And then we have the hell realms, various hell realms, different kinds of terrible suffering, the animal realm and the realm of the hungry goats. So Ditsan, Jizo is the Lord of these six realms. And we often see um, six Jizo statues together that, that resonate with these six realms that Jizo helps people in. So in this koan, Ditsan planting the fields, um, there, there's a little bit of a backstory to it. The, the monk that Ditsan is speaking with, whose name is Shushan, had been at this monastery with Ditsan or uh, at this practice place and had not really um, been all that respectful to Ditsan and didn't really study with him or ask questions and left. But the people he was with, his Dharma brothers, kind of slowly returned because of Ditsan's teachings. So this Shushan comes back and he encounters uh, Ditsan and Ditsan asks him, where, where do you come from? And Shushan said, uh, I'm coming from the south. And Ditsan said, how is Buddhism in the south these days? And Chushan said, there's extensive discussion. And Ditsan says, how can this compare with me planting the fields and making rice to eat. And Shushan said, what can you do about the world? And Ditsan said, what do you call the world? What do you call the world? What world are you talking about? So uh, many teachers have looked and turned this koan and today I wanted to turn this, I wanted to turn this with you. The, um, 
you know, where are you from, from the South? How is Buddhism in the South? Uh, there's extensive discussions. There's a lot of talk. There is a lot. And I would say, uh, yes, uh, lots of, lots of things going on in the Buddhist world right now. And then Ditsan says, how does this compare with me planting the fields and making rice to eat? And I, I think, um, you know, I used to read this as a kind of, um, what shall I say, a little bit harsh or something. But this time when I studied this, I thought he's asking him, he's really asking him to think about this. How does this compare with this everyday, everyday work of providing food and manual labor and all the work of every day and making food? How does this talk compare to that? So I didn't hear it as, as, as a kind of um, uh, strong, harsh response, but more think about this. And uh, Shushan says, what do you do about the world? Which I, I feel came from a real place to me, um, how, which is maybe the question, how are we gonna practice? You know, there's all the words and discussions and all that going on and in our daily life, how, what do we do about the world of suffering? And then uh, Nitsan says, what do you call the world? So I wanna stay with this, what do you call, what do you call the world? And, and talk about um, our own subjectivity Subjectivity, you know, is one of those words that subjectivity and objectivity that I found, um, I don't know, like, I don't want to, I don't like those words or something. I don't want to talk about subjectivity and objectivity. They sounded so boring to me, you know, but I feel like, you know, the importance of understanding our subjectivity is paramount is is so important to what do we do about the world our own subjectivity is we can't somehow skip over our own subjectivity with some delusion that how we see the world and how we experience the world is the way it is is the reality of the way it is for everyone and this is um, this is delusion, and not only delusion, but dangerous, dangerous delusion. So I, um, I've been listening to a wonderful teacher, Jay Garfield, professor, who's doing a series of talks. Uh, they're online, and I think they were uh, a while ago this year, but a while ago on um, studying Yogacara teachings. And these teachings are part of the third turning of the wheel. And one, one thing he said was that the first turning of the wheel, the early wisdom teachings were about setting out the path of samsara and nirvana and the path to being free from suffering. The second turning of the wheel or the great wisdom traditions, uh, he said were about the emptiness of the object, the emptiness of, of our mind objects or the objects of our senses. And the third turning of the wheel was about the emptiness of the subject or the subjectivity. And all three work together, all three turnings. It's not a success of getting better and better and better, but all three are part of our teaching uh, field. And there is 
there are teachings in all three turnings and they all contribute and complement and help each other. So this, this notion that, oh, this one's better than that one or supersedes or, or that one, you know, as we know happened, some of you know, a kind of denigration of one uh, school or another. This is not our way, but what can we, what can we learn? So, uh, so subjectivity is our own thoughts, feelings, experiences of the world. The world, there is no world except as the world as we experience it. There isn't a world out there that's it. Our world is the world as we experience it, the world we were born into, educated in. And you might say, well, that, that I share that with um, all these people, right? At least in, you know, I can name people who share that world. However, I'd like to say that there's a rough sharing, a rough sharing that we might say that um, this is a, someone might say that's a book and I'd say, yes, that's a book or an apple or we agree to that. However, my experience of that book and your experience of that book or of that food or of that ex place is your world, is my world, the world of this subjectivity. Now, there, there's um, something Suzuki Roshi said in the precept ceremony that we repeat when we give precepts um, where he uses subjectivity and objectivity. And I've always like um, wondered what it was that he meant. He's talking that this particular uh, part of the ceremony is after the, the ordinance have been have received Buddha's precept and Buddha's robe and a new name. And it's, it's a very celebratory time. And right there at this time, um, Suzuki Roshi's is from what he said in an early uh, ordination. Who practices the precepts? For whom do you practice the precepts? To whom do you give its merits? In the pure precept, there is no subjectivity or objectivity. And in itself, there is no merit even. So this is this non-dual teaching of neither subject nor object. And uh, that teaching of where you can't pull apart the subject and object um, I, I want to bring into the room right now. However, I want to focus on the subjectivity of our world as an antidote, as a, as a way to study what's going on for ourselves and for everyone we live with and speak with and how not studying this contributes to suffering in the world. So I, I was saying about the, um, you know, the six realms in the uh, Genjo Koan, it, it, there's a piece that says when you ride out in the ocean and no land is in sight, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way, but the ocean's neither round nor square, it's, its features are infinite in variety, it is like a palace, it is like a jewel. Now this, this this water, this ocean that's like a jewel or like a palace. I'm seeing somebody wants to be admitted. Jenny, can you take care of that? Yep, I'm on it. Uh, the water to the fish and the creatures of the sea is a palace. It's where they live. It's very different from what water is for us. We, could, we say water, but and then to the hungry ghosts, water 
is um, undrinkable. It's they thirst and thirst, but when they drink water, it turns to fire. So water, there is no, there isn't a fixed reality of water that everybody says that's water. It water is according to our lived experience the world as we live it and experience it. That's our subjectivity. And to maybe arrogantly think, well, I, I know what water is and it's water for you. It's the same for you as it is for me is, uh, is dangerous. And uh, I would say uh, harmful, harmful. So I wanted to tell a story about uh, myself and my own subjectivity. And this was, this is a story that I've never told. I don't think I've told hardly anyone. Uh, it was um, 52 years ago and 1968. And I was on my way to Florence, Italy for my junior year abroad program a full semester, a full two semesters. It was September through June uh, in Florence. And I went across the ocean with a ship full of students only, it's kind of wild. We landed in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, in Holland. And I can't remember exactly how we did it, but then we went to, um, Germany, this was in October, we left in September, it was now October. And part of our itinerary was to be, we, we went down the Danube, I think, um, was to be in Munich for the Oktoberfest. Now, the school that I was attending was called Gonzaga in Florence, which was a Jesuit college from Spokane. Some of you may know it. And all the students were Catholic. They all were Catholic, except for me. And my uh, religion of origin was Judaism. And I had already begun to sit. In fact, I had my Zafu and Zabutan with me in my trunk, uh, which is another story. Anyway, we, we started on this voyage down the Danube. I think it was the Danube, maybe it was another river, to get to Munich in time for the Oktoberfest. And here it is, October. This is why this story came to me. So everybody was very excited. I was 21. Everybody else was 20 because I had uh, dropped out for a year. And so to be in Europe, to be in Germany where you didn't have to be 21 to have a beer and all, everybody was really excited, very giddy, you might say, too excited. And I uh, was not excited. I was extremely uncomfortable and fearful when we got to this beer hall, this big beer hall, and there were these big wooden tables with all these people and 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 it was loud and there was music and women in kind of Bavarian I think dress traditional dress with you know lace bodices and long skirts carrying in their hands like three steins of beer big big steins and throwing them down on the tables and singing and there were dumplings for sale and and men in lederhosen and and I I had a complete traumatic fearful terrorized feeling based on my own subjectivity you know it was only 25 years since World War II, you know, I had never been to Germany. I had been taught uh, a lot of things about the German people. And, and here I was now surrounded. And what were they going to do to me? Once they knew, they could tell I was Jewish. And anyway, I, I went into a state 
of fear, of um, I could I I could barely speak. I couldn't. I wanted to leave, etc. Meanwhile, all this my school buddies, all my friends, were having a grand old time and drinking these delicious beer, having all these treats and and laughing and fun and dancing to polka music and and I was I I was in a state in an altered state so to be to say to these friends of mine which I never did you're living in a fantasy my my world this is the reality of of this world my experience, this is the true, and you're in some delusional state. Or for them to say, look, nothing's the matter. What fun, aren't we having fun together? Um, to, and, and knock it off, you know, get over it, have a beer. Both of those, you know, to, to reside in either of those ways of thinking is, harmful is uh, creates more suffering and neither of those neither of those worlds are the reality but they are the worlds as we experience them and in in the yoga chart teaching there's three characteristics of phenomena the first characteristics characteristic is called the imputational or the imagined, sometimes translated as, and this, we impute, we we put meanings and, uh, you know, all sorts of significances, and and on top of that, then was flowing from that, all the emotions that come with it, all the fears, or or the opposites, right? We impute on reality, all of these things based on our world. What do you call the world? What do you call the world? So this, this um, story about my experience of terror and, you know, when I think, you know, 25 years ago right now feels like two seconds ago, you know, it just doesn't feel like that long ago. So to walk into that Oktoberfest, it, there was no temporal, you know, that was 25 years ago, this is now, so much has changed, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's no, um, what shall I say, reasoning, you know, with, with the world as experienced. These were my feelings, these were my. And for someone to be able to not know it for themselves, but to understand, to try it on, to, to from subjectivity, from the subject's side, to know what that is, is the beginning of our un, un, uh, undoing of harm that we cause. So when we say, you know, it is like a palace, it is like a jewel, uh, the world of water, it's that way with everything. And we've been having a lot of talks um, where we touch on these practices that help us and illuminate our world. We have a roughly shared world, but we do not share completely our worlds. My world will live and die with me. All my associations, all of the things, and, and the same for each one of you, all that you appreciate and recognize and love and taste, sound, smells, taste, touchables, and how you, your consciousness has been 
how, how you've been educated, the, the shape of your um, chetana, the shape of your mind that is uh, that lives and dies with you. And it cannot be exchanged or shared. However, we can make the effort, and this is the beginning of compassion, to know and realize that people do not experience what I experience. So in, in this um, these talks that Jay Garfield has been giving in, in the ninth talk, and you can find these on YouTube if you wish, he, um, he, he's giving these talks on YouTube, but also to a group of nuns from the Shravasti Abbey. And there's a group of maybe 10 or 15 women, Tibetan uh, practitioners who are in the room together, but I think he's, he's on, I believe he's on um, a screen for them. Anyway, he, he talked about implicit bias as an example of the imputational or the imagined implicit bias, which is often unconscious. We don't, we, we often don't know, we didn't ask for this, we didn't decide, but based on the world we live in, the way we're educated, the media and all the myriad things we have, uh, you know, fixed views, we have held views. And so this thinking of that as the part of the characteristic of, of the mind of this, how we impute on things, how we imagine things. And then not only do we impute and imagine, but then we act on those imaginings and contribute more to how the world uh, is for good or for evil. So he, he read in this um, uh, class nine, a letter from a friend of his who is a philosopher, a, African-American man, George Yancey, philosopher at Emory University. And he read a letter that I think was in the New York Times or an article where uh, Professor Yancey is talking about talking with a white friend about jogging, both joggers. He lives in Georgia. And his white friend was saying, I really like to jog outside. It's, you know, the fresh air and it really feels good. And he was saying he really liked to jog indoors on a, on a uh, treadmill. And what, what um, a Professor Yancey did not say to her was that the, the fear and terror of the possible harm that might come to him by jogging in, in the neighborhoods, in different neighborhoods, and the knowledge of things that murders, assassinations that have happened to people of color when they have been imputed and imagined to be not where they are imagined to supposed to be. And this is the world as he experiences it. This is, cannot be otherwise uh, at this time. And for her to understand that and to see it rather than talking about the merits of open air jogging and indoor jogging, but to get it, you know, to begin to get from a subjective, from subjectivity, what that must be like what that must be like. So do we realize, yeah, am I realizing as a white person, the 
uh, lack of my ability to understand the subjectivity and am I uh, of people of color, am I giving it my full attention and knowing the world as I experience it is my world and what is the world that someone else might experience. This is, this, this is a, a necessary, necessary, it's also important to objectively work on these things and the laws and structural, you know, structural things and, and studying and economic, all these things. But to me, and Jay Garfield was saying, and for me, uh, strongly feeling like I want to make as huge, a big as effort as I can to understand subjectively what this must be like, knowing that the world as experienced cannot be exchanged. So our own subjectivity and our imputations both uh, we, we live in the world that we impute and imagine, but not only that, we, we create more of the same, or we create the world by virtue of these imaginings and imputations. Our actions of body, speech, and mind flow, can flow from the imputational, from the imagined. And we know many stories about this. I, th I thought such and such, I thought I was in danger. And that story of me in the Oktoberfest, this was a subject, I felt what I felt and created, you know, the, there was a world that I was experiencing. And then through that, I created more, you know, So Jay Garfield, you know, ex, ex, um, admonishes us or, you know, unless we're clear about this, we become more, more of the problem than dismantling the problem. So what do we call, what do we call the world is a good question. What do you call the world? The, the monk, you know, said, what do we do about the world? Assuming, you can almost hear it in the question, we both know what we're talking about, right, teacher? And, and Ditsan, which means earth store, you know, comes back to what do you call the world? Let's start there rather than assuming in a loose kind of rough way, well, sure, yeah, we all do, right? Our experiences, our, our world as we experience it. Um, I watched a movie recently, which maybe some of you have seen, which I wanted to mention, uh, called My Octopus Teacher. It's on Netflix. Uh, and it's a documentary about a man named Craig Foster, who he was in a kind of, I don't know, a, a kind of uh, burnout state. I think he felt he couldn't do his work, which was documenting uh, wildlife. And, uh, and he felt he couldn't be there for his family and his son, his young son. And he, he kind of did a self-practice period almost where he went to a place that he remembered as being happy, which was the coast of South Africa. I think maybe that's where he grew up, right by this body of water with huge waves. Um, and, and just kind of did a retreat for a year or so. And he swam in this very cold water 
about 46 or so uh, degrees without a wetsuit and without a scuba and went down into this kelp forest uh, every single day for a, for a year or over a year. And he encounters a very unusual being. You know, these six realms, as I, the, there's the animal realm, the hell realms, and the hungry ghost realm, those are called the states of woe, I think partially because um, in the animal realm, you're often, there's, it's characterized by fear because you're, you're prey, you're hunted, you're, um, so I don't think all animals or pet, your pet at home necessarily lives in fear, but maybe, you know, um, as this characteristic, um, it's one of the characteristics. So, so it's, a, it's a different world, right? The animal realm is a realm and it has, uh, you know, sense abilities that we don't have in the other realms, in the human realm. And and how do we, and our studying the, the different realms, studying the animal realm is kind of what he, he did. You know, he went into the water and one day he saw this strange object, which was, looked like a big mound and collection of rocks and pebbles and shells and all just like a big mound. And it was just so strange looking, like a little hummock of, of all these things. And then at a certain point, it just burst apart and out of it came an octopus. And he begins this, almost like a pilgrimage of returning every day to this area in the kelp forest and getting to know this, this being, this animal. The, the, the octopus is a mollusk that has no shell. It's like a snail that crawled out of, it, out of its shell and just is, is very um, vulnerable, very, very vulnerable. And it's millions of years old, <laughs> you know, millions and millions of years old. It lives for one year the octopus, and it is very intelligent. And this octopus, who's a she, slowly, slowly, I can't remember how many days he had gone down there and began to trust that he was not going to hurt her. And there's this one part of the video, I, I don't want to be a spoiler, where she, she reaches out one of her tentacles and touches him and and then you know they become friends and what do i mean by that i don't know they spent time together she showed him who she was she wasn't hiding all the time she has to hide from prey so this and i felt in in the documentary his his effort over and over to understand this being from another world. What do you call the world? Her world where her, her, her brain is both inside and outside. It's on all these suckers and tentacles. There's brain, what you could call brain. It, you know, such a different being. And there, what happened between them was curiosity, I think, to start and then trust that there would not be harm. And that, and then there became play, you know, actual play together of these beings. So there's, there's a kind of overlap in the realms, like they were there, they could see each other and all, but what, what is the world as experienced? His world, Craig, uh, 
Foster's World and this octopus, her, her world, her very short life. And I, you know, if you can watch it, um, it was recommended to me by Fu, the Avocet Green Gulch. And it, it's, a, it's wonderful and beautiful. And the ingenuity and cleverness and fast thinking of this being in order to survive her brief life in the water. Uh, and she shows him, she shows him this, includes him. So to be in awe, to be respectful, to not assume anything really, to know the imputational and the imagined is our daily life, you know, and that if we study it, we can, we can be um, as careful and gentle as possible with our fellow human beings and animals and plants and this great earth. Uh, without that stepping back to realize this, this is not true for all beings. What I'm experiencing and to be curious what are you experiencing? What's going on? Please, and, and to be trustworthy enough that someone would open up to you because we are vulnerable. We are as vulnerable as that shellless mollusk, you know, swimming with all her extraordinary ways to survive, changing shapes, changing colors, speeding away ink, you know, squirting ink, just um, amazing. A and I would say that human beings, vulnerable human beings in our, in the world that we share, this shared karmic life, but that is not exactly the same, have had to do the same have had to, to protect themselves. Have had to find with great intelligence and skill ways to be safe and to make choices where one can be left in peace. It's not always possible. So, so these six realms, you know, we think of these six realms as it's a kind of teaching story, maybe uh, different psychological states, you know, we can be in a paradise kind of a realm where everything's going smoothly and, and, and in that realm we might forget that people are suffering. That's one of the characteristics. There's a lack of compassion there. Or we might be so strong and powerful and um, using our power to beat down the opposition and, uh, and a lot of anger. There's, that's a realm. That's the realm of the Ashuras or the fighting gods. And they have a tree, a fruit tree in, in their realm, but all the fruit, it, it kind of leans over and all the fruit is over in the, in the Deva realm, in the, in the paradise realm. So they just pull the fruit and have a nice snack and the, the competition angry, they can't get at it. It makes them even more angry, right? That's a realm. Maybe we recognize that kind of a realm. And then there's the hell realms of great suffering. So, so much suffering that we can't move. We can't 
we can barely act. We can just survive. Like the octopus when she had a wound, just stay very still. In the animal realm, I mentioned of uh, fear. In the hungry ghost realm is desiring and wanting and obsessing and wishing and being quite frightened and not being able to fulfill because you can't, whatever you eat or drink, uh, it, it doesn't touch, it does, it does, it turns to unedible things. It's kind of a world of addiction, a world of nothing is enough. Nothing is enough ever. Once you get one thing, it's not enough. No contentment. And the human realm, in the human realm, there is suffering. There is plenty of suffering, but it's not that it's enough suffering so that we have compassion for others who suffer. We see and can understand that that is a suffering being as well. And in the human realm is where we wake up. These are the teachings of this uh, wheel of life the wheel of becoming and in all those realms there's bodhisattvas teaching there's bodhisattvas who are teaching buddha dharma and we can hear in all those realms we're able to hear so uh, this um this octopus meeting this being these two beings meeting and caring for one another in this realm was a teaching for me and an example of how to live in this world Really. So I want to end with this tiny little, um, it's a poem form, it doesn't have an author even, it's like a haiku, but even shorter. And the poem is, the stone image of Jizo kissed on the mouth by a slug. A stone image of Jizo kissed on the mouth by a slug. I think a, is a slug a mollusk without a shell? I'm not sure what it is exactly, but that somehow that image, I just wanted to leave you with that little poem. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our programs are made possible by the donations we receive. Please help us to continue to realize and actualize the practice of giving by offering your financial support. For more information, visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.